Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is working on the SoundHealthPortal.com. You can go to SoundHealthPortal.com and look around. It's an amazing thing now to be able to doing it online versus having to have all that computer, all that software stuffed into your computer and haul that around. This is a technological advancement. And you can go to SoundHealthPortal.com, click on the Services button, and then click on Campaigns. If you would like to see how it works or get the kind of see the kind of information you'd be getting, you can choose one of the campaigns, which are the free current software programs that you can run for free. And I think currently they have PTSD, neuroplasticity, <laughs> golf. I laugh every time I say it, but I, but I have known golfers that have had their vocal profile done. And then they'll look at either things that are hypertonistic, too much, or hypotonistic, not enough, and balance them out and improved their swings. It's amazing. So you go there, you choose a campaign, and then the, uh, the system will walk you through. You sign up for a free account, and it's just for you to get your report. They don't spam you or put you on a failure information. You will be walked through doing two 45-second recordings. And then you'll choose the campaign and you'll submit that and you'll get a report back in about two hours to 10 hours, I think is the most I've ever waited. With just an unbelievable amount of information, I suggest sitting down with a cup of tea and reading it and reviewing it because it's just a boatload of information there. As you want to know more, you can also then take that report to your healthcare practitioner and look it over with them and they can see what's either too high or too low and and use it to improve our state of being. And you can also go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on media, and there you can look at any number of live webinar demonstrations where Sherry walks you through using the portal for various, she does various demonstrations where she'll look at a particular package of software. Kinds of charts now that she produces where it makes it very obvious of like where you wanna go, oh, there's the thing that's the most something and we really wanna look at that area and slowly drill down until you go, oh, there's methylation is an issue. Let's uh, look into that. It's really a wonderful facility. And then if you want to hear this show, which I know you will, Kate O'Neill's book on waste. Wow. Wow. Waste. That's a whole open so many, dare I use the term, can of worms in my mind, is really great. And the idea of turning it into a resource, I think, is a, is a brilliant direction. You'll be able to find the replay of this show in about 15 to 20 minutes afterwards by going to soundhealthoptions.com, clicking on the radio tab and clicking on Sound Health Radio. And there will be a link there that will take you back to the Blog Talk Radio page with the show notes and the links. And or also at the top, we have a link now for Stitcher or for Pocket Cast, where if you click there, it'll show you the latest shows we have. And at the very top of the list, those take a little longer to get the feed up sometimes half an hour to an hour at the very most, but you'll find the link there for the replay of the show. And with both of those, I like those a lot, either Stitcher or Pocket Cast, because you can easily share the show from both of those systems so that when you listen to this and you want your other friends to hear it, you can just share the link and there's the show. It's amazing. The internet. Wow. Actually doing good. And with that, Waste is one of the planet's last great resource frontiers. From furniture made from upcycled wood to gold extracted from computer circuit boards, artisans and multinational corporations alike are finding ways to profit from waste while diverting materials from overcrowded landfills. Yet, beyond these benefits, this new resource still possesses serious risks to human health and the environment. Kate O'Neill is a professor in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management at the University of California at Berkeley and holds a PhD in political science from Columbia University. She's known for her work on global environmental politics, governance, and the global political economy of waste. She's been featured on NPR shows such as Fresh Air, Here and Now, and Marketplace, as well as quoted in The Economist and other venues on waste and recycling. In Kate's newest book, Waste, she traces the emergence of the global political economy of wastes over the past two decades. 
She explains how the emergence of waste governance initiatives and the mechanisms can help us deal with both the risks and the opportunities associated with the hundreds of millions, possibly billions of tons of waste we generate each year. Drawing on a range of fascinating case studies to develop her arguments, including China's role as the primary recipient of recyclable plastics and a scrap paper from the Western world, zero waste initiatives, the emergence of transnational waste pickers alliances, and alternatives for managing growing volumes of electronic and food waste. O'Neill shows how waste can be a risk, a resource, and even a livelihood with implications for governance at local, national, and global levels. Professor O'Neill joins us to talk about the risks and opportunities of waste. Welcome, Kate. Thanks, Richard, for having me on the show. I have to ask right out of the gate, you talk in the book, in your book, Waste, about your fascination with waste since childhood. Uh-huh. Why? You don't, I don't hear that often. Why is that? No. Well, actually, if you, if you talk to any waste scholars or waste practitioners, you often get the same story. I've, I've found that um, many of us just simply, I think, start noticing the litter and waste around us and, and want to do something about it and learn more about it. So I was one of those kids who got uh, gold stars for picking up litter in my school playground, but also uh, had early exposure to what it meant to recycle, to take trash to the tip. From my parents, uh, they were very, uh, I think, early environmentalists, as I look back on it now, though I don't know if they'd recognize themselves as such at that time. They do now. And just sort of being very exposed to what we called the tip growing up in Canberra, Australia, and which was then, you know, a pile of trash with burning tires. And then also the recycling depot, which must have been nearby, that had all of its um, glass separation uh, containers and newspapers. And But very few plastics back then. Like consumer plastics were not a big part of, of our lives back in the early 1970s, but paper and glass certainly was. And so from there, I took environmental justice classes when I was in graduate school, understanding the impacts of waste on on minority communities, and also being surrounded by trash, noticing trash, wherever I went, who was picking it up, noticing the garbage trucks. I don't know. I, I always feel like, well, why wouldn't anyone be that way? But apparently they're not. So I feel like that's something that I really bring to this field that uh, I think is very important, a certain passion that goes back a very long time. See, I had the very same thing as a kid. I grew up on the Monterey Peninsula, so I grew up, uh, I had a camera in my hand from junior high on, and I photographed the stunning beauty of Big Sur and, you know, areas went camping for I, we had a mom in our family group that would take us camping for like up to a month at a time. I mean, serious mm. camping, not like not like day camping, but like serious hiking and camping in stunningly amazing wilderness of the Ventana Wilderness, which is the huge area of protected forest from the Big Sur area down to northern L.A., and mm-hmm. so I, I had that same thing. I was very possessed by the beauty of nature, not just photographically, but like, hey, pick up that thing. What are you doing dumping that in the forest? Are you out of your mind? You know, that kind of uh-huh. thing. I was, one of, I was yeah. that guy. And people are always like, what's, what's your deal? What's the deal with you and nature? What's, and that was in the, in the long time ago. That was in the mm-hmm. 60s. So it was definitely the same kind of, why wouldn't everybody think this is amazing? It's just, mm-hmm. I guess we all get it. You just had it with waste. And I can, in a certain way, I understand the fascination because then years later, one of the things I talked about on radio early on in the night, this was in the late 80s, was talking about the military waste at the military base called Fort Ord, which was an active military base for a long time and a big one in California. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where they were beginning to clear the area. They'd the military had moved out and left the barracks and left everything, and there's now a university there. That's but right. There's always there's always been the ongoing. Well, I don't know that it's true today, but we spent a good five or six years talking about it on radio. They would clear the brush by burning it, but the problem right. was that they'd had munitions in those fields from all the practices and all the exercises and all the all those military words. I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. And just a lot of toxic waste that they were just burning. Like it was just okay, we just burn it. And that's what yep. we spent a lot of time talking about. It's just, you know, that's when waste really became in the byproducts of, you know, runoff from landfill and who's monitoring that and all that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I completely relate to the, I'm crankier about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, yeah. And And how did we... Culturally, when did we start creating landfills versus something else with it? Just the idea of just <sighs> oh, just take the waste and it's oh, and the waste is typically even on the Monterey Peninsula. I remember the first time I went to the dump, mm-hmm. and it was huge, but it's always just over a hill. You never, you rarely get to see the scale of an actual dump until you're uh-huh. in it. When did right. we start piling it up and hiding it in the woods? Mm-hmm. Uh, at a large scale, I would say we, we tend to trace this culture of both more industrial waste and more consumer waste back to the 1950s, the industrial boom after the war, and uh, uh, the rise of the culture of, of consumerism, that disposability was great. We shouldn't need to be tied to dishwashers and, and all of those kind of household appliances. In fact, uh, some of the early advertising around this was related to uh, feminism and the rise of, of, of women being kind of freed from drudgery in the home. So there's, there's that, that, those origins. But to a very large extent, we had to be taught to uh, throw things away, that it actually went against the grain for many people to feel like, oh, you know, we just have these paper or plastic cups and plates and we just throw them away rather than washing them and keeping them for the next meal. So there's there's definitely, and, and the same thing you see with studies of food waste, that people have to kind of overcome an uneasiness uh, and still feel an uneasiness about throwing away food that relates way back to these cultures of thrift and uh, want not, waste not, and all of those uh, you know, empty uh, the the war campaigns around you know the need to save food and um, food rationing and all of those those aspects that kind of go into that. But so I'd say we we really began to to embrace this in in the 1950s with large scale growth of consumer economies, growth of population, and growth of industrial activity. And do you think that part of that product was from that was sort of the slightly later stage, but sort of what the technological revolution, air quotes, I'm not sure it was such a revolution. I'm sure it wasn't in some ways a de-evolution, but that's mm-hmm. a personal issue. Uh, that we somehow learned to manufacture things, particularly ones plastic, got a step beyond Melmac. I'm old enough to remember Melmac. Um, oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Melmac was a pre-plastic plastic. It wasn't actually right. a plastic substance. Mm-hmm. It was a more of a brittle... It was a weird, it didn't last long because it broke. Mm. It was plasticky, yeah. but it broke. And then you were like, what is this shards of sharp things? It's like glass. Why do I have melmac? Right, right, right. So then we learned to shoot things into a mold and start making plastic. And I remember the first time, again, uh, at a picnic in Big Sur, at a park, we had things and suddenly we were using like plastic forks and it just seemed odd in my mouth. It just seemed mm-hmm. like creepy. What is that? And then we what? In those days, you didn't even know, but there was no recycling yet. It was just, right. oh, look, cool, plastic. We just throw it away. And it's like, what? Uh-huh. That technological yeah. revolution of shooting things into a mold and making a nine million different shapes. When mm-hmm. did, you know, did that, did that increase our landfill and our waste load like a hundredfold? Um, yes, I would say exponentially. And, you know, there's this light, brightly colored, you know, material that, that holds things and doesn't leak and so convenient. So uh, we had, uh, as I say in the book, a very long love affair with plastics and plastic bags, you know, very useful. And that indeed um, started filling up our landfills and our waterways and um, you know, some of our most beautiful natural places, and of course, in cities as well. So you just get these these piles and piles of plastics, which I think have really become the um, the main rallying cry of the of anti waste and movements and circular economy, zero waste activism and movements, I should say. Well, in in the early phase of, of plastics, I remember that was a long time ago. Um, doing shows and talking about estrogen mimickers 
because mm. a lot of the plastics break down and they act like hormones in our bodies, which confuses mm-hmm. the body. Mm-hmm. And really the, fa- the famous one, at least in my mind, was I think it was the National Enquirer did a piece on uh, the size of alligator penises in Florida swamps. Now, that oh. seems amusing, and they did it because it was an amusing thing. But once you uh-huh. actually read what it was indicating, it was that the, the alligators were having a hard time reproducing because of those issues. But it was mm. because of estrogen mimickers from the waste in the water. So mm-hmm. it was actually the hormone receptor sites were being screwed up by the kind of pollution that they were being exposed to. And since they live in water, they were the first ones to be affected. Later on, there was, of course, photographs and shots of frogs with too many legs or, you know, fish uh-huh. with an extra eye or, you know, all sorts of right. things. But it took us, it seems to have taken us a long time to go, oh, if it's affecting the frogs, huh, what about us? Uh, yeah, so, yeah. So there and is that. Huge, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. That's been a huge battle with the uh, chemicals industry, of course, to actually say and and allocate, have them have have sort of them acknowledge responsibility for producing substances that might do that. Uh, this is an ongoing ongoing battle. But the latest studies show that plastics have been found in our blood and in our tissue, in our poop. You know, it's they they those microplastics, those traces of plastics are everywhere not just in the water-dwelling creatures. I'll have to remember the alligator story. That's a good one. <laughs> no, it's a real thing. I saw the cover of the, oh, yeah? it's not. I'm not making it up. I saw the actual cover of a magazine. I kind of think it was the National Enquirer, but I'm not absolutely certain. And it was so long ago, I haven't been uh-huh. able to ever find it online, but I'm certain somebody has a picture. But it was mm-hmm. a real thing. It was a real mm-hmm. thing. It was like, woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. And then those yeah. in the environmental world were going, oh, my God, what does that indicate? It was sort of that Rachel Carlson phase of Silent Spring where we suddenly Uh realized, oh, my God, we're slowly killing ourselves. We just Mm -hmm. still can't quite figure that out. Mm -hmm. And then is part of that, when did it become a trend to start barging our waste up and sending it to other countries? Oh, yeah, that's a big – that's one of the big things that – I talk about in the book, which is that waste is now globalized, and it kind of creates this distancing effect, which makes it even more, even harder for us to see and think about our trash. It's no longer here. It's been shipped someplace else. Sometimes that someplace else is from California to Alabama, uh, but often and increasingly it's been overseas. We kind of see this uh, in the 1980s is when you started to notice these shipments of hazardous waste going from uh, Europe or the States to uh, Africa, to the Caribbean, to all kinds of, of places where it could be dumped without any um, anybody really noticing, but with, with huge hazardous effects. I mean, it might be cheaper, but it killed people. And those shipments are one of the first things that really galvanized global action around waste. And so that, I think, became most visible. But I think that for a long time there's been a scrap trade, a very positive scrap trade, because we've been shipping aluminum, copper, steel to China uh, and other manufacturing centers where it's going to be used um, uh, to fuel their economic boom, but also to provide the products that get shipped back to us. But I think we've only really noticed the plastic um, waste trade very recently. That is relatively recent. Uh, I would date that back to the early 2000s as, as something that we really started doing, which was we're not, we can't recycle this at home. We have no markets for it. We have no use for it. It's expensive. It's much cheaper, and there's much more demand in countries like China to take this and, and use that scrap or not depending but that's that's kind of when it really that particular waste trade really took off mm-hmm. and would you because i know you talk about this in the book would you clarify between the, the difference between waste versus scrap mm-hmm. well let's start by saying that's not entirely a clear cut that okay. uh, one one person's waste may be another person's scrap <laughs> so wa- waste is something that we want to throw away never see again we have no value for, and for others, uh, scrap and is, is, is material that is thrown away but is bought and sold and has, has value. It can be reused, turned into something else, sometimes 
like metals that can be melted down and turned into the same thing. Sometimes like plastic, it can be recycled once or twice. It downcycles, but it can be reused. It, it has value. And um, the same thing might be waste and scrap for, for different people. I, I use an example in the book, which actually comes from one of my high school friends. Uh, she and her family and her husband worked for the British um, uh, Development ministry and for aid agencies and they moved around a lot mm -hmm. and the story she told from Zambia when they moved there was that they unpacked all their boxes they had a whole pile of cardboard boxes somebody came to the door and wanted to take them they negotiated a price and they thought that was the price they would pay that person to take them away and that person saw that price as what he would be paying them to take the boxes and use them for something else. So I think that that example just shows that it's it's a very contingent, very contextual differentiation. However, once we start talking about global markets and international trade, we're starting to look at the need um, certainly with, for some of these commodities and some of this waste for a, a clear distinction. But, but that's kind of uh, something that's been very hard to arrive at, and we haven't done that soon. But basically, yeah, it's the difference between stuff that has value and stuff that doesn't once it's, it's reached the end of its first uh, life stage. And here, I know now, I'll go back to the dump in the, in the Monterey Peninsula area, which mm -hmm. is a huge dump. They got to a level of uh, sophistication where they actually had a store on the ground, yep. on the grounds, which were basically mm -hmm. containers that they'd cut the sides out of, and they would gather things from the dump and sell them. Chairs, tables. Yep. It was always, it always blew my mind. We would kind of mm -hmm. go as like a weekend, like let's go to the dump, which at first freaked people out, but once you saw what was available, it was mind blowing what you could find in perfectly good condition. Mm -hmm. from people who were professional waste pickers who would go into the waste and or the guys dumping the trucks. So I'm not sure quite how they did it, but they found these amazing things and you'd go look and there'd be full sets of dishes. And I mean, have we always had waste pickers mm -hmm. or was that really something started in other countries where we would send giant barges of waste? Mm. No, we have always had waste pickers and scrap pickers. It's one of the one of the oldest professions, in fact, uh, particularly in cities um, where people would go around and, and collect trash. This is back to the 18th, 19th century and upcycle, clean it up, resell it. It's, it's really um, yeah, a profession that, that dates back to the Industrial Revolution or previously. And one that um, has gone through, goes through phases. It's always seen, it's often seen as sort of the dirty work done by marginalized people and but those people have through building up scrap industries often become wealthy and powerful and and accepted members of of, of civilized society quote unquote but it is a very long-standing profession i think we see it now very visibly in in the global south where you have thousands of people around these these waste dumps making money by pulling things out like that and reselling. Also, the people who do the waste collection from households will also engage in this practice. It's on, it still exists here, obviously, with the, the, what, the, the landfill stores, what we would call the tip stores. Again, that's, that's the Australian for it. Mm. And that these, um, and a lot of people who make money just sort of picking stuff up from sidewalks or uh, they have, there's many ways in which people get rid of, of waste. We, uh, when one of the times I downsized, we would, our, our obsessions, which happens a lot for us, mm -hmm. uh, we um, would just put a photo of something up on Craigslist, put it out in our driveway, and someone would come along and take it. It was that free cycling. And so lots of ways in which that, that profession still exists. It's a little bit more uh, hidden, I think, in, in, in the U.S. and other developed countries, but it's very much still there. And when we first started, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated. I don't know that you – I don't think you talked about it in the book, but I'm really fascinated at the idea of, like, the first barge of waste – was it uh was there somebody on the other end that went I'll pay you a dollar for that barge because they yeah. they saw that there was an opportunity that somebody we had waste we wanted to get rid of it meaning the United States mm -hmm. and we wanted to get rid of it we didn't care where it went really we just wanted to get it out of here 
it's it's kind of that not in my backyard thing where we wanted to get rid of it. And then was it an opportunistic person on the other end that just had a big field to dump it in? Or was it an actual they had the idea of an industry? I kind of think it was the first one. What do you think about um, that? I think I think that always varied, but you look at the barges, you have the New York garbage barges, and even sort of hazardous waste disposal, where uh, the people who had produced the waste or sort of holding onto it would pay someone to take it away, and sometimes that those people would just dump it somewhere. They wouldn't say with hazardous waste uh, without following all the rules and regulations, and that often was associated with uh, organized crime. But I think very early on, people would see the opportunities to say, okay, we're gonna, um, you're going to pay us to, to take it away, and we're going to then get more money by refurbishing and, and, and selling it. Uh, but that became um, a full transaction in that often, I think, once with the recycling industry that grew up in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that the municipalities, the recycling companies would actually sell the plastic on. They realized that they didn't always have to pay to get rid of it and that they would make some money that way and keep garbage fees down. So the people who actually paid were the households, the the producers of waste would pay for garbage services and then it would be sold on from there. So it's an interesting chain of of, 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 of value, things being uh, value being added to the waste and and entrepreneurs making making money out of it. And I know uh, I live in Northern California, north of San Francisco, and Mm -hmm. I know that our garbage company, Recology, ran into a I don't know that they have a solution yet. I have further questions about that. But when China stopped taking our plastics waste, all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> no, we're not sending it there. Oh, my God, what do we do with it? We're in the habit yep. of, like, not storing that plastic waste. What do we do now? Right. Yeah. It was, so it that was threw really, a real, you know, yeah. brick in the, I don't know, whatever that is. But, I mean, it was it's a gnarly thing, and I think it's good. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts? Ah, yeah. Oh, that was a seismic event. I mean, really, it's hard to imagine something happening in an industry that would completely reshape it so quickly. And I think that when it happened, I mean, China announced it, announced this ban in 2017, very suddenly, it had been slowly putting restrictions on, on plastic waste, in particular, because of its condition when it arrived. Uh but when they fi- actually made the announcement of, of an effective ban, a real crackdown on contamination limits, uh, they really took the industry by surprise. And the first, the first effect was um, a feeling that it's the end of recycling, the end of recycling as we know it, and, and crisis. But that in, in the industry soon um, became... Uh, the basis for opportunities to build new technology, to build markets. And that, though, at first was, and still is to some extent, um, the companies just simply had to store the waste. I've been on panels of folks from Recology, and and they've talked about sort of the way their warehouses were just piled with cardboard and and plastic. And a lot of it has gone to landfill. That That has been the most immediate solution to it. But you know, there are many, still many um, efforts to try and find more productive uses for all of the scrap, as well as now increasingly efforts to reduce the flow of particularly post-consumer plastics into landfills, into these, these storage places where they are piling up where they're often literally dangerous. The possibilities of fires um, has increased exponentially, too, in these storage areas, and that's not a good thing. Well, and I was going to save this for later, but you, you made me think of something about plastics. Is mm-hmm. this uh, madness of the phenomenon of unboxing in the tech world, where everything is packaged beyond imagination, just mm-hmm. beyond imagination? I have so many bad words running in my mind. Yeah. Um, it's just maddening when I when I see recently I got some batteries I use recycle rechargeable batteries mm-hmm. and I bought these recyclable batteries and when I got them there was a box there was a plastic box on the outside there was a cardboard box and each group of I bought 12 batteries and each group of four batteries was wrapped in plastic in, a, in each in its own little box 
Uh-huh. And the charger was wrapped in its own little box in a plastic bag in the box. And I just thought, yep. these are batteries in a box. I don't need an unpackaging. Mm-hmm. This is not, mm-hmm. you know, and when you see these unboxing videos, I'm not talking, I'm not casting aspersions at the technology. It's this, and I, and I point at Apple for this. They were kind of the thought leader in the, like, this special box and the excitement of opening your $1,000 newest phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, and other industries have done it as well, but Apple is such a huge company. They really set a trend of like, oh, the magic of the unboxing. And mm-hmm. it's just more, I can't use that word. I so want to use a bad word. That stuff <laughs> that is just like, <laughs> it just is, it seems like a crescendo of, we're not producing enough waste, here's more. You know, every right. time somebody buys an iPhone, there's like 23 parts to get to the damn phone out of uh-huh. the phone with the plastic shield and the plastic and the wrap and the, you know, the little cord twists. And it's just, it's, I, I, we seem like we're hell bent on producing mm-hmm. waste. Yes. And I, you know, in, I've been sort of obsessed with some of the old school uh, stuff like polystyrene peanuts. I didn't think they existed until um, mm. my stepdaughter, who's a teenager, got some shipments of cosmetics the other day. And I noticed in the bathroom where she had unboxed it was a box full of, of polystyrene pellets for, you know, a little cardboard container of, of, I think, face cream or cleanser or something like that, tiny, but in this big box. I was like, how could this be? How could people <laughs> still be using polystyrene peanuts? It yeah. makes no sense. It made no sense to me as I tipped them into the trash and then had to pick them up as they all fell everywhere. It's just really... And you just sort of figure, try to figure out how how the message has not really filtered up, back up to these companies. You hear some... Some companies are talking about about how they change their packaging, but I, yeah, very few are, and there's still, um, you know, a whole lot of problems in that in that industry. Despite, you know, there's a huge level of awareness now about packaging and the waste that it causes. But again, we're all addicted now to getting everything mail order from Amazon or from, you know, delivered from DoorDash or wherever, and that always generates huge amounts of of packaging and waste. Mm-hmm. So I remember when I saw society. one of the times that I saw William McDonough lecture. He's a renowned architect in the environmental realms, and one of the projects that he worked on. I can't remember how it got started, but it had to do with uh, Japan trains. And in Japan, uh-huh. they have lunch boxes that they sell on the trains. Uh-huh. And when they get done with the lunch boxes, they throw them outside the window for reasons oh. that still I don't understand, but they do. Uh-huh. And now what he did is he reinvented that lunch box so that when they throw it out the window, the farmers then gather those lunch box- boxes and they degrade so they can actually work them into the soil, and they're designed to break down and become like a nitrogen source or a something. They're not just a pollute of waste. Mm. They're actually something that farmers are now gathering outside the trains as they travel uh-huh. because they want to work it into the soil as a nutri- micronutrient for the soil. Right. So there are, those, there are those amazing – he also did this amazing project with uh, the original Ford manufacturing plant in mm-hmm. some place. I can't remember um, where he now. It took him years to do this, but now the the water going into the plant comes out cleaner than when it went in. And is that mm. his goal? He's really a possessed. He wrote the book uh, Cradle to Grave. Mm. Grave to mm-hmm. Cradle? No, Cradle to Grave. And mm. so he's really uh, always been a thought leader hero to me because he really thinks about we can still make cars but we're going to make the water coming out of this factory cleaner than we're going in versus the other direction which is we're manufacturing something and here's our waste byproduct good luck downstream mm-hmm. it, it's a very different way of thinking but it's like wow we can do that mm-hmm. we can still manufacture cars and not destroy the planet wow mm-hmm. I love that I love that angle and that's one of the angles I'll try and get out of the, the dark cranky side <laughs> about waste. Um, but I, I, I guess I, I just have to because you're not talking to us from Australia, but Australia is in this amazing fire state, which is, I think, uh-huh. slowly slowed down. I'm in Northern California, uh, not in this last fire that we had, but the fires that we had several years ago. I was in a location where I was evacuated. Uh-huh. My my area didn't burn, but you know, the, I'm part of the area south of Santa Rosa, where about a thousand homes burned. Uh-huh. So there's that destruction. 
then, so you, you're thankful to see the giant Boeing jet spraying pink fire retardant. But what about uh-huh. all the waste from these disasters? What is that? Where right. does it go? Right, what is right, it? Is right. it safely disposed of? Is it? Oh. Any, I know. I know people want to scrape the homes clean and get those foundations built and get people back into their homes. But what about all that byproduct? How is it processed? Right. Is it? Do people think about that disaster mm-hmm. waste? Mm-hmm. Well, I do. <laughs> yes, people increasingly <laughs> do. Uh, that's one of my new projects, I think, because to work specifically on that, because I was in Australia the week after Christmas uh, through the new year, and my parents had been evacuated from where they live, and, and we were definitely under fire watch and emergency um, consistently. It was, the news stories were horrific, and you'd pick up these these um, stories occasionally. I mean, one of the, the tragic um, outcomes was, of course, the death of all the wildlife, but also the fires ravaged the dairy farms across mm. the southeastern part of Australia. So you had thousands of cattle carcasses around that had to be dealt with. You have burnt lumber. You have whatever is in houses these days that is toxic, which is a lot um, being burnt as well. You have some remnants, presumably metals and so on, that could be reused. But disaster waste is a really become a really big problem. And it sort of falls between the rebuilding side, of, well, first the emergency recovery and then rebuilding, but then you've got this intermediate phase of how do you deal with this stuff? And the Chico, around Chico, where they had the, the campfire, there's still the campfire that, that killed so many people, they're still mm-hmm. clearing that up. Um, well over a year after it happened. So for me, that's that's something that's coming up again and again as we see these weather disasters from climate change, the aftermath of hurricanes, to um, generating this these this toxic, often this toxic rubble, this, these toxic stews of of animal remains in flood in flooded areas, and it's 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 quite a huge issue and one that is really challenging if you're trying to look at waste from a resource perspective. Well, that's not always easy to think about in terms of value. You think about it in terms of human tragedy, of economic loss, and just simply ravage landscapes. And of course, it's not just climate change, it's also the impacts of war that generate this level of waste. So I feel like that's something I can really think about and maybe contribute to over the next couple of years as I carry on working on this this topic. But I care very much about it, and I know there's no easy solutions to dealing with disaster waste. Yeah. I'm already scheduling in my mind having a show when you put your next book out talking about that, because I think that's such a... That's such a huge thing. I mean, I've been through multiple fires here. I was through a, mm-hmm. a fairly good-sized fire on the Monterey Peninsula when part of Pebble Beach lost homes. Mm-hmm. And my parents' home happened to be the lookout for the local fire uh, district because they were looking out over the forest. And so, I mean, fire waste is gnarly because it's that yeah. weird mix of chemistry and, like you say, all the toxicity mm-hmm. that are built into our homes. Mm-hmm. It's it's gnarly. I can't. I know that's not a very you know professorial word, but it's a gnarly thing. Mm-hmm. It's bad, bad. It's bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and uh, this is another product that we have today that's a, that's an issue is tires. Mm-hmm. And so we have tires. We've had on and off for decades. We've had various. You know, it, does, it has slowed down, but we used to have fires like in the Sacramento Delta where you'd look out across, even from Sonoma County, you'd look out and you'd see this giant plume of really nasty looking smoke mm-hmm. because tires would catch on fire and they're really another gnarly compound to quote myself. Yeah. And and do we look are are people looking at technologies like let's say gasification, which is a high intensity kind of uh, incineration where but you actually gather mm-hmm. the byproducts to make fuel are they looking at that, or is the industry oh, yeah. resistant to spending that kind of money to do mm-hmm. that kind of technology? Um, well, that kind of technology is being developed um, in certainly in, by startups. It's it's in sort of <coughs> technological <coughs> development right now. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. And mm-hmm. that is something that is currently still very expensive. It needs to be scaled up. 
And there's a lot of opposition. I mean, you know, let's face it, we do not have a good history with any kind of incineration. And so <laughs> I think there are a lot yeah. of questions about um, what could the impacts of this be. But tires are, not only do they catch on fire, but they uh, collect water in developing countries and parts of uh, the United States as well. They breed malarial mosquitoes. Uh, they are, they're a big deal to deal with. So some technologies like that would probably be a huge benefit in terms of getting rid of those because there are there are reuses for them they can be reused but tires are not safe as we know after um, several years of, of use so refurbishing them is is an industry but it only kind of gets at the the very surface level of the problem mm-hmm. and and i know that i i understand the idea of gasification is expensive and yet, do people compare that to the expense of the waste that is occurring from tires burning and the effect on the atmosphere and, like you say, mosquitoes and all the other things? At some mm-hmm. point, can't we draw the line and go, it's expensive, shut up and do it? I don't mean that yep. quite so crudely, but I mean, <laughs> the total effect, you know, that's always been sort of an, an industry thing, is too expensive. Well, what about right. the planet? How about that? Yep. What do you mm-hmm. think? Yes, it's how you make them uh, take into account their impacts on um, on the environment. And we see these efforts in, in other areas. This is, happens in electronics, which is sort of to mandate extended producer responsibility, to say, well, you produce these, you sell them. Are you are now going to be responsible legally for taking them back and disposing of them? So that is one way uh, in which governments and, 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 and activist organizations have pushed for industry to really start taking these external costs, those social costs of what they produce very seriously. And that has worked um, to some extent. There are, it's problematic in, in many ways, but it works in the electronics industry. And that's something that's been used. But it, it is hard to look at that full set of costs. And at the other end, you have people who argue, well, we just need to stop producing them and using them. And that's another arena of, of, of technological development. I'm not familiar enough with tires to know what's going on in that area. But that argument is, well, we don't need to focus on recycling and technologies because that's only going to encourage ongoing use and consumption and production of these things. So we need to focus on um, cutting back our use of them and reducing consumption from, from that end. So you have a lot of different pieces along this whole life cycle of plastics or tires or electronics where people are having different arguments about what to do. To some extent, they're in conflict. People who are in favor of reducing consumption say we can't even think about recycling because that's only going to encourage us to keep doing this. And the recycling industry is saying, well, no, we're very much a part of that enterprise and we're taking these these products that are not going to be stopped anytime soon and trying to turn them into something else that can be used, can be sold, has value, and reduces environmental impact. So it's, it's a co- very complicated um, it's a very complicated sort of arena of, of, of activity and with sort of all of these extended um, sort of producer supply chains where you've got lots of different actors, um, organizations and companies and government agencies all the way along the line. It's really hard to create kind of a coherent platform. There's a lot of arguments going on right now. So it's, it's complicated <laughs> to really think that way. Yeah. And I'm wondering – you know, for example, there's a manufacturer, well, it's Apple, but I think others have followed suit, where this idea of they they now make their phones where they glue the battery in. Mm-hmm. And I've listened to tech journalists report about recyclers don't want to deal with those because it takes so long to get the battery out because it's glued into place versus in the old mm-hmm. days when it was just screwed into place and you could easily demanufacture it and use the parts. Right. Now mm-hmm. with it being glued into place, it's not cost effective to try and process it because it's almost impossible to get the battery out. Yeah. So, so is there, are there, are there organizations that are, and I'm not directly picking on Apple, although I'm really in a bad mood about their trend toward overpackaging and everything. Right. But, this idea of gluing the battery in because we want once one another is thinner, lighter, more perfect, you know, all this thing, all the IP mm-hmm. marketing. 
Right. Could, yeah, that's, are there yeah, groups that are trying to push them to, like, stop that? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Um, yes. I, again, this is like another one of the ongoing projects out of this book, but I do talk about the right to repair movement, and that's a movement on so many different levels because, yeah, it's not a coincidence that suddenly we can't, uh, take the batteries out of our iPhones, that if we hack into the iPhones the next time that there's an update, they basically freeze it and you're left with an unusable <clears throat> little tablet. Uh, companies benefit from this. They, it's called planned obsolescence. All of our electronics, a lot of them are now designed to have a short lifespan, so we go on and buy the next gadget. That's how they see their um, their profits being maintained over the years. So this has been a lot of resistance to this now. And uh, interestingly, it actually started in the U.S. with, with farmers uh, because their tractors mm. increasingly having electronic components that were proprietary, they couldn't fix. So the tractor breaks down, they can't fix it. That is a very fundamental part of being a farmer is you, know, you have to be able to fix your equipment instead of having to send it back, pay a lot of money, or even buy a new one every time it breaks down. So the movement in the U.S. is often at the um, the legal level, sometimes ballot measures, but, but people trying to um, force a right to repair, repair, repair bills through so that uh, companies have to allow open source, open access equipment and software so that people can fix their own machinery or or devices, um, those sorts of things. And those measures have been brought in in about 20 states, I think, uh, but have not been successful so far because the industry has mobilized so completely against it. But I think uh, tides of opinion are currently turning, and that might be something that we'll see more of in the next few years. But there's also, I, I think of it as quite a subversive movement, that there's a lot of fix-it collectives in the country, people who are really you know, engaged in really working to fix these things outside of, of the, the mainstream production system, the, the corporate system, and that's, that's been quite effective and quite popular. And then finally, there's, there's a movement to encourage people to develop basic repair skills again, just fix our clothes, sew on buttons, fix our shoes rather than throwing them out and buying new ones. And that movement is quite powerful here and in Europe and is about reclaiming lost knowledge and lost skills and also creating community at the same time. So I find this movement really fascinating and I think it's so important on so many levels. Uh, if we want to really tackle electronic waste in particular, we need to have some of these these skills and uh, back again and also the right, the legal right to be able to do that. Oh, so many words I have in my mind that again are bad about right. this. Right. <laughs> Having been in the in the tech world in terms of producing radio and doing webinars and televents and uh, that mm -hmm. for other people, that the the right to repair really it just blows my mind. I'm old enough that I used to like rebuild an engine on my car. My mm -hmm. father had raced cars, and so he had those skills, and so we'd actually repair cars. Now I open the hood of my hybrid, plug-in hybrid, and I can't – I don't even know what I'm looking at. And I'm not right. saying that's bad, but it's just like, I – what? I don't even know mm -hmm. what to do here. And mm -hmm. and also, I used to build my own computers when I used PCs. You'd mm -hmm. get a giant box. It was a big box, and you'd open it. It was, like, spacious, and you'd use a screwdriver, and you'd replace a fan or a power supply or mm -hmm. hard drive. Now with this, this trend again of things having to be tinier, smaller, you know, fit on your wrist and the thing and the stuff, it's just, it, it's just, it's almost as if the, the tech industry has a blind eye to, especially with this trend of planned obsolescence, mm -hmm. it just, it outrages me every time it occurs where I have a device, whether it's an Android phone, I'm more of an Android person. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that it's suddenly like, oh, we're not going to support that anymore. Why? Why yep. not? Because it's a I perfectly know. fine device. Everybody doesn't need the newest, latest version 12 or whatever mm -hmm. it's called. It's just, it's a bad, is it just a marketing trend? I mean, I understand why they do it because they don't want to support it anymore. But, I mean, up until recently, you were still able to use a, a Windows machine with, like, 
XT on it. I mean, if you were sandboxed, mm-hmm. you were safe. But in in the other worlds, there's just this trend of like, oh no, that's dead now. Nope, we're not going to support it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? Really? Yeah, we want you to buy the new one for all of seven hundred dollars or however much it's going to cost. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, why don't you want to be up to speed with all the latest apps, phones, and so on? I mean, there's not even much they can do anymore. I mean, increasing battery life would be great, but I don't know that that's <laughs> always a priority. <laughs> and it really has transformed our lives in so many ways, uh, both in terms of some convenience and knowledge at our fingertips, but also uh, this dependence on, on devices. I'm sitting here with my phone and my laptop in front of me. My iPad is upstairs. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm traveling. I'm, I'm on the road right now. I still have three devices with me. I wish I could pare down to three. That would be amazing because uh-huh. <laughs> I'm the same way. I mean, I, I take advantage of technology because I need it for what I do. I like it, uh-huh. but also I still have a, a laptop PC that I've been using for 10 years that I don't really use much online. It's mostly sandboxed for its uh-huh. safety because it's not really protected, but it's a fine, slow-moving beast. It still works. It still boosts. Uh-huh. It still can do uh-huh. stuff, uh-huh. but this this marketing trend of like you say the newer shinier iphone 11 next year it'll be iphone 12 and then pretty soon they'll change the name and it's like you know and they're a huge i I pick on apple only because they're such a monstrous company that produces Mm -hmm. you know sells i don't know how many billions i don't even know the numbers anymore but they're just stunning and they could be an amazing thought leader Uh, i remember when there was this was a few years ago they had a picture, they showed footage of a machine that disassembled iPhones. Now, uh-huh. I have a feeling that machine is somewhere locked in a closet, mumbling, going, I can do something if you'd let me. <laughs> me, yes, but that's it's, probably you know, true. But, but you glue the batteries in and I can't take it apart now. But I mean, yeah. there was that as a marketing angle. But is there, can we get companies to be responsible for their waste? Okay, so upgrade my phone, but make me send it back to you, the old one. So and mm-hmm. you recycle it. You deal with it. You don't just put it on a barge and send it to another country. You actually right. have to do something with that product. Is there? Mm-hmm. Can we make legislation to make that happen, or is it just pressure, or how do we? Um, is that possible? Yeah. Do you think it's well? I I think that in Europe they've made a lot more progress than 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 here um, for lots of reasons. I think. Legislatively, it would be very difficult to do anything beyond a state level, and then um, you're talking about the states like California who will try and implement these, these sort of what the sort of circular economy bills, the, the right to repair and so on, that in Europe they've made much more, many more moves towards making sure that appliances can be easily, you know, you just have a framework where you can take out a SIM card or some component and insert a newer one in so that the basic um, framework keeps working. There's a lot of concern about what goes into the electronics, what kind of labor conditions they're produced under, but where do these metals come from, the rare earths that are used in those, uh, the rare earth minerals that are used in our computers and, and phones, and do they come from conflict zones? So I think there's more attention being paid there to having things being reusable. There are some companies uh, that are working on iPhones that are made out of better materials, not just plastics, but things that are reusable, recyclable. So that there's there's moves certainly in in Europe, but here I would say uh, they're not quite gaining traction. Certainly at levels that would make a dis- difference just now. And from your research, is there is it the culture in Europe that really leans that way more than we do or is it our companies are greedier i'll use that term or (laughs) what do you think it is i mean you know the europeans are similar about toxicity you know in europe they've already banned glyphosate and roundup they've already Uh not completely not everywhere but i mean a lot whereas here we're still well our administration has gone mad with the amount Mm -hmm. of destruction aggressive they're not just approving things. They seem to be aggressively going after the environment at this point. But that's another show. Right. 
<laughs> just another show. Uh, but <laughs> yes, even when there's the industry is saying, no, why, why do we need to do that? We don't want to produce that toxic waste. Um, anyway, it's so strange. It's very vindictive. Uh, Europe, and I will say too, I mean, of course, it's a lot of the same companies. They're all multinationals. So you have companies who are behaving differently in a European context than they do here. I think there's a lot more... Uh, citizen activism and, and awareness there. You also have stronger Green Party components in, in parliaments and legislatures in the European Parliament and Commission as well as in, in national governments. So you have an ability there to uh, do more and enact stronger legislation. And again, that, that a lot of that is coming from the European Union itself, from that level. And again, because we do not have that level of federal engagement. There's no federal policy around waste and recycling in this in this country other than uh, some things around some of the most toxic waste. You've got Superfund, you've got uh, mm. some other e-waste legislation, but there's nothing federal yet, although we see a lot of moves in the current, um, some of the presidential candidates who are embracing zero waste. Mm-hmm and circular economy platforms. But Europe is a lot more ahead of us. They're a lot more aware. It's lucky it's a benign <laughs> government there. It could be uh, not, but I think they, they definitely see their role as protecting social rights, human rights, and environmental rights for their people. What a shocking idea. I know. Uh, Crazy <laughs> stuff. <laughs> um, I have a question they have from chat. I believe. Yes. What is it? Uh, well, I was going to uh, say that this is an interesting, uh, interesting question about. They're asking: Is there an international reusability index or recyclable index that could be stamped uh, onto a product? Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, I, uh, I hear happy kittens and puppies and dogs and happy music. Uh-huh. That would be an amazing concept. <laughs> a reusability yes, index. That would be yes. stunning. Mm-hmm. We have some of those social indexes. And unfortunately, we're stuck with the um, those plastic symbols that are fairly global, the ones that are stamped on the bottom that have the recyclability arrow and then a number in it, which uh, is not really a signal to consumers. Uh, it's designed to, to the people who are getting rid of the materials, and, and they should know that sevens are not recyclable. But those numbers with the little arrows make it look like they can be recycled. So, yes, we need it. <laughs> I want to get rid of those. That would be yeah. That would make me happy. And then to have something like that, even if it's just sort of an international clearinghouse of information, that would be great. Some database we can go to. It would be really hard and complicated to put together, but I do think some some kind of standardization would be great. Um, it's globally really hard to do. We don't even have a, a globally accepted definition of hazardous waste yet. We have indicators and we have lists of substances, but it's not really totally universal yet. So it's hard. It's hard, and I'll, we're moving. Well, actually, it's we got closer to the end than I thought already. Um, uh-huh. Because we talked about it backstage, I'll reintroduce. I'm certain the audience is tired of me talking about this, but I can't help but introduce what we talked about backstage with the Carolyn Raffensperger's precautionary principle. Uh-huh. I just really would like to see that on a flag somewhere. Just the idea uh-huh. of the really think about the uh, ultimate effect of what we're doing. Just a mm-hmm. little precaution. No, it's not. It's not stopping you from doing it. It's just actually making you really think about it. Mm-hmm. Like, is that factory that's producing a product somewhere, wherever it is, that's dump, then taking their byproduct and dumping it into a local stream? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there an effect there? What do we uh-huh. think? Well, I think with precaution, the precautionary principle, too, is that it really forces you to go back and look at product design. I mean, I think that's also where thinking about waste takes you right back to that um, that part, that very fundamental part of producing products. And you can produce products. You can design products to be recyclable, to easily biodegrade. I don't know that you could ever produce products uh, some people talk about a world without waste where everything gets cycled back. I'm not sure that that's 
Um, that's fairly utopian, but I think that we can think through from a very early stage in producing all of this stuff, how to design it. But you still also have to think through points of like, well, why do we consume so much? Why, why do we have all these single-use disposables? Um, there's, there's demand for them all along, all along mm-hmm. the chain. But I do think precaution is, is just so important and can be thought of in terms of waste disposal technologies as well. But I really, when you say that I go first, back to product design and how we need to really be thinking through uh, in a precautionary way, thinking, well, what could be the worst case scenarios with this? How do we avoid that, even if it involves extra cost that is then passed on through the product life life cycle? Well, and the idea of dismissing cost to the environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we all live in the environment. No matter how much money people have, you still breathe air. Uh-huh. I, I, there seems to be a uh, again. I'm I'm going to try and find another word than trend, but I, in in certain circles of of wealth, they see they seem to act. They seem to be acting like their grandchildren won't be exposed to what's being produced by the industry they're supporting and advocating for today, and that uh-huh. that confuses me. That leaves me completely flummoxed. Like, uh-huh. no matter how much money you have, your grandchildren are going to be exposed to what's in the air and what's in the water and the microplastics. And don't you care about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I think that that, again, is that distancing of how is this going to affect me. I, the last year, the last couple of years have been the years that have really brought home to a lot of people how climate change is affecting us on a on a daily basis and will keep affecting us. And I think that's been a real wake-up call for a lot of people. And it would be nice to see that extending through dealing with entire ecosystems. I think that we have, this will all also be challenged by growing inequality in this world, that you've got the hyper-rich who can still insulate themselves from a lot of the worst impacts of um, poverty, of social degradation. They can hide themselves out in gated communities, surrounded by armed guards, and and you know, not be part of that. Now that we've got so much concentration of wealth in the hands of those folks, they can they can get away without really noticing these consequences, and they're still the most powerful people in the world. So I just got to a very radical place, <laughs> but I, I I think that that there is also a lack of awareness about the impacts that will. The, the fact that their children and grandchildren will indeed be having to deal on a daily basis with some of these problems that you can't hide from climate change very hard. You can't hide from microplastics, as it turns out. They're everywhere, including in our bodies. So, yes, it's how people, how you make people aware of that is one of the fundamental issues I've been grappling with since I was a teenager. So. Yeah. Yeah. I have the same thing with as I look at the environment. I'm still a photographer. I still photography is my meditation. I still go out and photograph nature, and I see the effect, mm-hmm. especially living along the coastlines where the weather is obviously changing. Please stop denying mm-hmm. it's changing. It's mm-hmm. not what it used to be. Right. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And and yeah. the effect of what we do to the environment, you know, whether it's species that are gone or things that we fished out, or I mean. I it's a I don't know. I was trying to find a high note to end on. I can't come up with it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can I can I can come up with one right there please. with the beaches. <laughs> Yes, and, please. you know, we talk a lot about plastic bag bans and restrictions, and, and you get some pushback from industry. But uh, on the studies are starting to show, both anecdotally from people I know who do beach cleanups, talk about far fewer plastic bags um, showing up on the beach. And then people who have done studies of ocean floors around Europe and places where these bans have been in place for a while notice far fewer plastic bags drifting down into the ocean floor. So that's been something that we're now seeing really material effects in terms of stopping and restricting the use of this particular type of and particular 
pernicious type of, of single-use plastic. So that's a positive. We're making a difference certainly there. So there's no reason why a difference can't be made with a lot of other um, single-use plastic disposables, other technologies, and so on. So I feel there's a real swelling of opinion and activism around these, these, these areas that I think will potentially lead to some positive changes over the next couple of decades. Wonderful. Thank you yeah. for that. <laughs> Thank you for an uptone. I didn't mean to yeah. take it so dark. It just happened. <laughs> the uh-huh. environment. Wow. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're at the point of where, where would you like people to find out uh, more about your work and about your book, Waste, and your other books? Um, well, a couple of things. One, I, have, I stay fairly active on Twitter, um, at uh, K-M-O-N-E-I-L-L 2530 and my website at my department uh, which is ourenvironment.berkeley.edu uh, you can find my website there and I try and put my publications and my appearances and so on up there so people can just click on what I do and find out more about it and then I the Polity Press website has yes. information on my book and on the series in which my book is in, which is a series on resources. So it's a lot of little books on forests, on timber, on food, on water and fish, coltan, and now waste. So that's a great series. So I um, would encourage people to go check out all the other books in it as well. Wonderful. Thank you. I will warn people that there is another Kate O'Neill, same spelling. She's a humanist in technology. And it threw me for a loop for a while because I was going, wait, this is a different what? This is a different person. So just Uh as you search for Kate O'Neill, be aware (laughs) that there's Kate O'Neill talking about waste and there's Kate O'Neill who's talking about humanism in technology or Uh humanistic approach to technology. And it's a confusing line. (laughs) <laughs> it is. I know. There's, there's a bunch of Kate O'Neill's out there doing great things. <laughs> doing great things. Maybe yes. I'll have to ask a numerologist or somebody who knows about that. It's like, there's something about those Kate O'Neill's. They're out there to mm-hmm. make change, and it's really good. Yeah. I like what they do. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's great. Have to get together um, one day. <laughs> oh, my God. That would be an amazing to have a Kate O'Neill meetup. Wow. Uh-huh. I'll go to yep. that. I would mm-hmm. so go to that. Um, all right. Thank you so much, Kate. Uh, oh, that you're was very a great welcome, conversation. Richard. And I, yeah, that was and I do fun. think there's, I do think there will be a, a second show as you get closer to uh, the right to repair. I really, man, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think open source, the combination of open source and right to repair is such, we need both of those so badly so that we can stop wasting everything. We just seem to be right. wasting it's mm-hmm. it's just stunning, just stunning. Yeah, yep. no, it's but an thank obvious you so much. thing to do. Yes, well, I'm, thank you. And everybody else, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.